here's what I need. I'm just going to obey the Lord. Okay, you, you prefer that instead of just doing something? Let's obey the Lord. I need your help, Bubba. If you would do something for me, would you get that guitar? And I need to play it. Uh, I'm not a good guitar picker, but I'm better than most of y'all. Uh, there's a story I'm going to share with you about this guitar and about playing the guitar. And I, I want to share that with you because it fits what I want to speak to you about tonight. And I should have forewarned him, but I really didn't think I'd go through with it until I sat down. And I felt like the Lord just urging me to follow my heart. So I'm going to do that tonight. And once he gets that guitar up here, we'll move forward with that. I'll set it up by telling you I played the guitar when I was 12 years old. I learned to play at 12. And my teacher was 12 years old also. And at 12 years old, he could play every song that Chet Atkins had ever released. And he could play it so identical you couldn't tell the difference. And that kid taught me how to play in the style of Chet Atkins. Well, on the bank of a river in Vietnam, can I get that thing on? Can you get that on me without knocking off my ear? <laughs> or my hairpiece? Or my head? You're good, man. Now I'm going to need a stand for this mic, too, if you don't mind. All right. And, uh, but he taught me how to play that style. Well, to do that, you have to have very dexterous fingers. And my fingers ended up getting blown off my hand. Thank you, sir. No problem. You're, 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 you're very kind. And it's even in tune. No wonder you sounded so good leading worship. By the way, your worship team. No, sir, I, can't, I don't have any feeling. Thank you. I play without any feeling. <laughs> that didn't come out right. But by the way, you have a great team up here. I thought, I thought the drummer, yeah. And I even thought the drummer was good. I, I don't understand the bulletproof glass, but. <laughs> and if there's volume on it, I can turn it up here, or he can do it for me up there. Uh, so here's what happened. I hit the grenade explodes in my hand right beside my head. My fingers come off. They're hanging by tendons. My left thumb is blown off and I'm on fire. And I hallucinate. You know what I saw? Levitating in front of me was my guitar. It was as real as though I could actually touch it. And I remember this so well because my first words were not to the guitar. I spoke to the guitar, and you'll find out in a moment what I said. When the grenade exploded, the, I jumped in the water, and for those of you that were not here this morning, the white phosphorus grenade, that white phosphorus burns in water. And when I surfaced, I inhaled, and I sucked that fire right down into my bronchotubes. And when I spoke, a ball of fire came out of my mouth. Boy, I wish I could do that today without the pain. I said, God! And what would follow would be a curse or a blessing. Because for eight months in Vietnam, I kept my faith. And for eight months, I was ridiculed. My biggest enemy was not in the bushes. It was in the barracks. The guy in the bushes was just trying to kill my body. He didn't care about my soul. The guys in my barracks were trying to destroy my spiritual man by destroying my soul. And I want to tell you something. It was a fight every day. When I said, God, what I said next was, I still believe in you. And when I said it, one of the guys that I had witnessed to and tried to win to Christ for eight months dropped to his knees on a burning boat and gave his heart to Christ right there. <laughs> I won that war in Vietnam. But. I jumped in the water and I swam across the river. And when I came up, I was on, I got on my knees on the bank of the river and I was looking at the damage. The guitar is levitating in front of me. The reason the guitar meant so much was number one, it was my instrument to play. I played French horn and I was in junior high when I was playing French horn in the high school band, first chair French horn. And I, I was given a talent of music as a gift from my childhood. That doesn't mean I was good. But I could hear a song, and I could repeat it on a xylophone or a piano. I could repeat it, note, note for note. It just was, it came naturally to me. Well, my parents, for a going-away gift to Vietnam, bought me the most 
expensive Gibson 12 string electric guitar money could buy. I do not know what they, and they did not have the money for that. There's no way they could have afforded that. That guitar in those days would have cost $2,000, and that was in 1969. It was in 68 when they bought it. In 69, I'm on the bank of the river, and I see that guitar in front of me, and I spoke to it. As my fingers are hanging, and blood is pumping out of an open artery with every beat of my heart, which I can see my heart beating, and this is what I said, guitar, I will play you again. That is an exact verbatim, word-for-word statement of what I said that day. That was the last thing I spoke. I fell over backwards. Everybody thought I was dead. I was listed as KIA, killed in action, because they had my body to prove it. We had the highest killed in action per capita with the Brownwater Black Bray that I was a member of, of all the groups in Vietnam, of all the teams. We had the highest, but you can't prove it because our guys' bodies went down with the boats, and if they don't recover your body, even though they know you're dead, you're MIA, MIA, missing in action, not KIA. And veterans know this is all the truth. So they had a body. They think I'm dead. I'm on fire. For the waist up, all my skin except my, this part of my face was blown and burned off my body. Sixty pounds of flesh was blown off me in seconds, and I kept both arms and legs. If my head had been blown off, that would have been an additional 25 pounds of ugly fat. <laughs> That's a bad joke. I'm sorry. You can laugh. It's all right. <laughs> Make me feel better. And um, I fell over backwards. They thought I was dead. The last thing I said was guitar I'll play again. So Fast forward, they get me to Viet, out of Vietnam through Japan. I tried to take my life. God alone kept me from killing myself. I pulled the wrong tube. I should have, I should have died, but I got hungry because I pulled out lunch. Instead, that's a true story. And they get me to America. I'm put in the intensive care unit, the ICU, and I didn't know what that meant because I'd never been in an ICU in my life. And then after eight months, for the first time, they stood me up. I stood up for the first time, and they put a robe on me, and it didn't come together in the back. That's why they call it the ICU. <laughs> I didn't have to go to medical school. Some of you were looking at me, and you didn't even catch it. That went right over your, I should get down on that bottom level, get right on your level there. And you know what? They took me to therapy that day. On this particular day and on the way back I therapy is when you pay the doctor to hurt you some more I was in so much pain I would just slump down in that wheelchair and at the angle I was slumped down and I could see under my bed I looked over there's my little teenage wife and under the bed is my guitar I forgot all about that guitar I'll play you again prophecy I looked at her and it was the meanest thing in 54 years of marriage I ever said to her I said, you and that guitar, get out. And she looked at me and she said, no. <laughs> Where's all that godly Proverbs woman, commit yourself, submit yourself to your husband stuff when you need it? No. I said, yes. She said, no. This went on for an hour and 45 minutes with longer space between the yes and no's. He got so quiet at one point that you thought we were both asleep until she said yes. I said yes. And again, she said 20 minutes later, no. And the nurse came and she said, Miss Brenda, sweetheart, you got to go. Visiting hours are over. On the way out, she said, no. She gets the elevator. I said, yes. And then when it went ding and the doors were closing, a Pentecostal, no. I'm telling you a true story. I couldn't get the guitar out of my head. It was under the bed, but it was in my head. And night after night, the guitar would cry out, play me, play me. And one night I couldn't take it anymore. And I crawled out, out of my bed. They make them real high so when you fall out, you stay longer than what you planned. It's job security. And I looked, and under the bed was the guitar, and I opened it up, and the little note on top said, You can do it, Davy." You know what I'm telling you the story? That song you were singing, Don't Tell Me That It Can't Be Done, however that went. And then it reversed and said, I can. You know, and I could play that guitar. 
I took it out on the fire escape and I made my first chord. This is what it sounded like. Guitar pickers know what's wrong. If you don't press hard enough for those strings to press against those little bars, which are called frets, you don't get any resonance of music. The, the strings have to vibrate off that metal bar. And I couldn't press hard enough for that bar without a thumb. That thumb was built two years later. I tell children, don't suck your thumb. And then they say, why? I say, don't suck your hip, because mine was made out of my hip. That grosses them out. I didn't have the thumb, and that's what it sounded like. But guitar pickers know you have the country chord, I call it. You don't have to have a thumb. Watch your no thumb, if you can see that. I'm only pushing three strings now. And three strings again in the key of G, you have the key of D in there. And in that same key, you need the key of C. Three strings. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I heard people clapping and cheering. And then I realized it wasn't my imagination after all. It was real people. They were on the floor above me, and they're chanting, more, more, more. And I just, it was so, and then I realized it's a psych ward. I think they wanted french fries. More, more, more. But I didn't quit. I kept trying. And the more I sang and played, the better it sounded. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Oh, yeah. I'm showing off just a little bit. And I was telling this exact same story on the veranda of our Texas ranch that we built for our warriors for DOD to send the wounded guys to for recovery. I was telling that story, had the guitar, I'd finished the song, and singing Amazing Grace, I noticed they were not looking at me. You can tell when somebody's looking not at you, even though it looks like they're, but they're looking beyond you. And I look back. At the Texas Ranch, we have, we raise Rocky Mountain elk. I have monster elk in there. Nine points on one side, eight points on the other, eight by eight, seven by seven. These are royals and above the most magnificent, biggest elk you'll ever see in your lifetime. I have about 22 of them we're raising. We don't raise them to kill. We raise them for beauty. And then when they stop producing, we harvest them for meat for our warriors to eat. They love it. But I noticed they weren't looking at me. They were looking beyond me. And I turned around. All of the elk had come up and were standing behind me as I'm singing Amazing Grace. And I stopped. And if you know anything about elk, they stretch their throat and they bugle. It's a high-pitched whistle sound. Every one of the bulls started bugling. And they all stopped at the same time. And I sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. When I got through singing, they started bugling again. We did that four times. And one of my warriors in this particular session were all warriors from Fort Hood that were shot up whenever that guy killed all those warriors at Fort Hood when he opened fire. And one of them that had a bullet go through his throat, through his jugular, into his shoulder and lodge, and lived to the glory of God, he said, the trees, if we don't worship God, if we don't give him praise, the leaves of the trees will clap their hands, the stones will cry out, and the elk will bugle. Isn't that a beautiful story? Well, I'm not real good at singing but my wife and I used to sing together a lot. And I could forget the words, and she always never, she never forgot the words. But I can remember the words of one of the verses of our favorite song. We sang this one year at General Council. And the people that were there started worshiping and weeping. And they came forward in repentance to a song. 
a song, mind you. And one of them came up later and he said, when you got to that part about life is so good I can't complain, I looked up and here's a guy that had his whole face blown off and he's standing next to one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen. They thought it was a production of the Beauty and the Beast. He said, and you're saying life has been so good. You can't complain. And my wife and I got in a fight coming to church over what she should wear and how she should look. He said, we're so embarrassed. We had to repent. Well, you don't have to repent tonight. But life has been so good. I can't complain. When I'm down, God gives me strength. I rise again. When I'm weary with the struggle of it all. How I listen, oh how I listen for his call. Heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. Seems like lately it's always on my mind. Someday I'm gonna leave this world behind. Heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. Heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. If you know the words, sing it. Seem like lately it's always on my mind. <clears throat> Someday I'm gonna leave this world behind. Heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. Guitar, I played you again. Otherwise, it'll just close on you. Thank you, sir. You're very kind, my brother. I appreciate all the help, the unexpected help. Thanks again. Whew. Now my heart feels better. There's so many things I want to share. Uh, there's a pastor friend here I met at the Outer Banks of North Carolina years ago at the Ark Church there. And uh, I come through there with my team. And Jerry Canlupo and I, one of my team members that I was training at that point that now is one of our great, great ministers of the gospel in education, uh, principal of schools all over northeast New Jersey. He, uh, he and I were walking along. It started raining. We ducked into this little, what do you call, uh, a little shelter, a gazebo. And there's a, a, black, a, a bass, uh, what do you call it? I have trouble with words a brass plaque and on it is written and it faces due east and it says to this effect if I remember correctly 300 yards due east of where this of this location in 30 feet of water lie the remains of the USS Huron built in 1878 or 75 to, 73 to 75, last of the ironclad sailing ships. And they also had steam engine, I think. So I went to the library, which is right there. It's right at Kitty Hawk where the first air flight took place. So I went down there to the library and I checked out a book on the USS Huron and I read the Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. And this is what it tells you. There was a, there was a guy that was captain of the USS Huron that was supposed to, to take it out to sail on Friday. And you never in the Navy, you never, go to, you never go to sail on Friday. That's an old wives' tale, bad luck. But there was a, a Commander, a Commander Ryan, R-Y-A-N, Commander Ryan, who taught navigation at the Naval Academy, who said, well, I'll take the boat out. I'll take the ship out, the USS Huron. All of the signs symbolize 
do not take this ship out because there was a storm in the Atlantic, high winds with that storm, high waves with all the flags were saying, don't sail. Well, the captain that was supposed to take it out had a bad dream that the ship came upon a bad ending and was sunk. So the captain didn't take it out at all because of that dream. But Commander Ryan, oh, he, he was the teacher. And he knew better than anybody else, and he took that ship out. They came upon high winds, and the sextant didn't mean a thing. He couldn't read the stars with the cloud cover. He became lost, and the boat began to drift. And he was he was he had his compass set, but he kept and he kept pulling in the darkness. There was just enough light to see the foam of the water splashing against the outer banks of the of North Carolina. Those huge stones, and the ship drifted into them. And it was torn to pieces and sank. And the survivors, very few of them, I think 100 Marines died that day. They were on that ship going to Cuba for training. This is before Castro, of course. And of the survivors, one of them said, the last words by Commander Ryan were these, and I quote, because I don't say these words myself, but he said, my God, and I don't say that, sounds cursing to me. I was taught not to ever say that. My God, how did we get here? My God, how did we get here? In forensic search, they got that compass. You know what they found? With no sextant, high winds, pushing. He trusted the compass that was one degree off. Say it with me. One degree off. See, when he set sail out of the port of New York, one degree off would never show up from point of origin. One degree is, you could never find it. But the farther you go, the worse it's going to get. Oh, you already got my message, didn't you? You already know what I'm about to say. Well, come get the mic, you preach it. I'll turn the pages for you. The farther you go, wrong, as little as it may be, the farther you go, the worse it's going to get. And one day, you'll find yourself saying, on the banks of life, on the rocks destroyed, my God, how did I get here? Because you were one degree off. I teach at, the, at Annapolis, at the Air Force, at the Naval Academy occasionally, and I teach on the USS Huron, and the one degree, and I teach on moral, ethics, ethics, morality, and character, and that's the triad of what I teach. And I use that story as a launch. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the man that was off one degree. And you can find him written in the book of Ruth. His name is Elimelech. And I'll bring this up on my, if you have your iPhones, turn with me. That was funny. I don't care who you are. This is the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, that's so you guys will stay awake. Thank you. I knew it was on or not. You guys are so fun. I can have fun with you and I don't have to fit in a box. Thank you. I'm not a performer. Thank you. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. Now it came to pass in the days when judges ruled. Say judges ruled. That there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in a country of Moab. Say Moab. I'm just asking you to say these words so I know you'll remember them in a moment when I come back to them. And this guy, Lemonek, he and his wife and his two sons, that's the whole family, all were in that country of Bethlehem, Judah, and went to sojourn in the land of Moab. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the woman was Naomi, and the name of their sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. That name stuff, repeated often like that, is a clue. You might want to find out what those names mean. The name of, the name of, the name of. And they came to a country of Moab and continued there. Say continued. They didn't go for an overnight. They moved. The U-Haul had everything in it when they left Bethlehem, Judah, and went to Moab. 
And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab, and the name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelled there about 10 years. That's a long time. You can get a doctorate in 10 years. And $70,000 a year. <laughs> My doctorate costs $14.7 million. Literally. I was given a doctorate for building a hospital in, in Vietnam, and it cost me $14.7 million. I'd rather have gotten it the hard way. Are you with me? Let's, now. And Malon, oh, you got to hear this. These are the two sons. Remember Malon and Chilion? They died also, both of them. And the woman, that's Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, the mother of these two boys, the woman was left alone, her two sons. She was left of her two sons and her husband. She lost all the men in the family. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that they might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord visited his people in giving them bread in the land, of course, that they left, which is Bethlehem, Judah. And they went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with them to return to the land of Judah. You know what Judah means? Praise. And if we're going to talk about the name of Judah, meaning praise, let's go back and put in the name's meanings. Are you with me? Do you like a little mystery here and there? This is the mystery of Dave Reaver. I really scared you there. Chapter 1, verse 1, Ruth, with the translation of each name. Now it came to pass in the days of the judges, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, land of plenty and praise, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, the land of incestual sin. He and his wife and his two kids. We're talking about one degree off, aren't we? Who's one degree off here? The kids? No. The wife? Uh-uh. Mom? Uh-uh. Dad. Dad. I looked up in the Jewish history. There is no record of a famine in the land of Bethlehem, Judah, in the year that he said there was a famine in the land. You know what I found out that famine was? If you look at the word famine, it was a famine of righteousness, a famine of holiness, a godly famine. Had nothing to do with food. It's kind of like Elimelech. Oh, by the way, his name means our Lord is king. So our Lord is king, living in the land of plenty of praise. Says, oh, it's not good here. There's just no, we don't like our preacher anymore. So we're just going to leave because he didn't preach what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I've heard that all my career. Land of plenty and someone's not happy. <laughs> I remember my dad went into building projects. The guys that said, you can't do it. We don't have the money. No way, no. And they leave the church. And when the building project is finished, they're at the door greeting people saying, welcome to our new congregation. Are you with me? I'm just talking about us humans. Stay with me. This is really important because you're about to find out how the shoe fits. This man of God, our Lord is King, sitting in the house of God, but he didn't want to miss that NFL game on Sunday. It was so important to him, especially Dallas. They got those little cheerleaders running around those missionette outfits. He was no longer satisfied with what God had to offer, and he had his eyes outside that church. This is the typical scene. And he says, we're going to relocate. We're going to move to another church. And they moved to the church of sexual sin and incest. Pastor, I don't know why you said what you said before I spoke, but if I had asked you to say something, I think I would have asked you to say exactly what you said about false doctrine.
the sign of the last day is more important than the sun, moon, and stars. Be not deceived. That's the big sign, deception. And nobody can deceive you better than those in the household of faith. Don't be deceived. He went to sojourn in the land of sexual sin and incest. And the name of the man was Elimelech, our Lord is king. And he was married to Naomi, whose name means pleasure. And the name of their children, Malon and Chilion, their names are sickly and pining away. Just stop right here and think a minute. When our Lord is king, marries pleasure, the children are always going to be sickly and pining away because the marriage is unholy. It's built on pleasure, not upon ethics, character, morality. Anything that's built on sexual pleasure is doomed before it ever gets started. Do you still love me? All four of you. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Come on, folks. Stay with me. Well, this is really getting interesting because you'll notice none of the women died. It was only the men. Why didn't the women die? Hmm. I wonder if they had sexual diseases, STDs they're called. STDs and, and uh, AIDS and AOCs. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I don't know where that came from. It's amazing what a man will say under the anointing. He and his sons died, I'm convinced, of sexual diseases because they went to the wrong house. Just leave it at that. It wasn't God's house. They went there and continued for 10 years, and bad things can happen in 10 years. And, by the way, the sons, sickly and pining away, aren't they example of the little snowflakes today that just can't take it? Oh, you offended me. I'm offended at what you said. I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to sue you because you offended me, you little snowflake. <laughs> Get a job and stick to it, sucker. I'm so tired of all these little excuses going on among a generation of whiners and, well, I figured that'd resonate with some of us about 75 years old. <laughs> Even in the 50s, they had a song that said, get a job. Remember that one? Chilion and Malon, sickly and pine. Doesn't that draw the picture of our generation? They can't get enough drugs. They can't get enough alcohol to satisfy a crying soul that nothing will satisfy but Jesus. Amen. And that ain't just preacher talk. They've tried the drugs. They can't get enough of those drugs. They're doing fentanyl now. One drop is enough to kill everybody in this room and most of the people in this entire city. And it's being hauled in from China to destroy this nation. And what they don't destroy, we're destroying in the womb. And now even out of the womb, if they don't want that baby to live. You know I'm telling you the truth. We're a nation one degree off. And God help us, we're drifting into the outer banks. And we're shipwrecked without a doubt unless Captain Jesus can get this thing under control. And he never goes down with a ship. Old ship Zion, he goes up with it. Amen. They died. And the woman was left of her entire family. And she said to her daughters-in-law, let's go back to Bethlehem, Judah, where I came from. Because I heard down here in this land of sexual sin, they're having a revival up there at First Assembly. Or whatever church name this is. I forgot where I am at. Trinity. New life. New life. I knew that. I was testing to see if y'all remembered. <laughs> yeah, you remembered. You, you, you get a check. I'm in a different church every Sunday. Forgive me if it slips me for a moment. So New Life is having a revival. Let's go back to New Life. And that's a good name for it. For my message tonight. New Life. The land of praise and plenty of it. We did some praising tonight. 
On the way, Oprah, I mean Orpha, <laughs> the story of Orpha's name was her mother was dyslexic and she misspelled it. It was supposed to have been Oprah, Orpha, but it came out Oprah. And Oprah, I mean Orpha, <laughs> means rebellious, stiff-necked teenage girl, kind of something like that. And when Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, whose name, you remember, was Pleasure, she said, change my name from Naomi. Change it to, who knows, Mara, which means bitter old woman. She went from pleasure to bitterness. And she said to her daughters-in-law, come follow me, this bitter old woman. And Orpha said, uh-uh, <clears throat> nope, going to go back to my people who, and their gods in our country. She, she, and she might as well go. If you look, and everybody else had footsteps except for Oprah, I mean Orpha. She was dragging her toes the whole way. She didn't want to go anyway. She wanted to go home to her own people. You, ever, you know if anybody else went back to his own place? What was his name? Judas. So I'm going to tell you something, folks. What you're about to hear is a true story in the Israeli history in the time and the days of Ruth and the days when judges ruled. And if you look in the last in the last verse come on, of the last book before Ruth, Judges chapter 21, the last words of that verse will explain something in a moment. I'll, I've got it here, and I'll read it for you if you don't want to look it up. Stay close with me. The question is begged. Not why did he leave the Bethlehem Judah, the land of bread, to go to the land of sexual sin? We know the answer. Because he, was, he wanted sex. That's why he left. He was a degree off. He wanted sex. He, did, he got tired of God saying, you can't do that. So he wanted to do it, and it cost him his life and the life of his two boys. We got the why. Where? Moab. We know where they went. Now we know why they went. We know basically what caused them to die, some disease related to men, most likely sexual. The who, we know, the man and his two sons, our Lord is king, and sickly and pining away. What we don't know the answer to is what made, he think, what made him think he could do that and get by with it? You know why most people sin? They think they can get by with it. You know why he thought he could get by with it? Because the judges ruled. I hope you're listening. When judges rule, there's always a spiritual famine in the land. God never intended us to live under judgment. He intended us to live in the freedom of the knowledge that comes in knowing and serving and walking with Jesus Christ. And when judges rule, it's always condemnation. In the entire planet Earth, the most litigious nation, that's the nation with most lawyers litigating, of all nations on Earth, it's the United States of America. We have more lawyers. And if you're a lawyer, I love you. Any lawyers here? Let me see your hand. Lawyers. I want to put you on my prayer list. Lawyers. Because really, you are under the gun all the time. I have, to, I have to always have lawyers for our ministry's sake to protect us. Because it, there are so many legal aspects to functioning under a government that has so many mandates and rules on 501c3 religious organizations, if you don't have a lawyer, you're going to make a mistake, and they're just begging you to make one little mistake so they can pull your 501c3. That They're just begging this church to make one mistake so they can take away your tax exemption. They're just begging for it. you got to cross the T's and dot the I's, all of them. So judges ruled. And what do judges rule on? They rule on everything from how much you can deduct to whether or not it's pornography if she's naked from the waist down or from the waist up. And, and if a baby 
is still alive and if it's a human and when it's a human and if they take that vacuum and suck that child's brain out it's no longer murder it's abortion it's a woman's right i'm making some people mad I didn't come here to make us happy. I came here to make us think. We are a nation going to hell in a handbasket because we're one degree off. That one degree happens to be the most important degree on the compass. Our moral compass is busted, and that degree off is we need Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't be more honest in what I'm trying to tell you, but I'm not through yet. What made him think he'd get by with it? Judges ruled, and judges... Now listen to this. Judges, that Supreme Court, you ever seen it? All those judges, what, nine of them up there? And of course, Democrats would like to have 30 with 38 of them being Democrats. And make no mistake, they're up on that top level. Don't, don't get nervous about politics. Both sides need to get right with God. Make no stinking mistake about it. Both sides of the aisle need a revival of conscience. Make no mistake about it. And until Jesus sits on the throne, no political party will ever take us down the right road to Christ again. It will be the last days, and our last days are upon us. But listen to this. We forfeited our conscience that God gave us knowledge of right and wrong. We know it's wrong to kill those babies. We know that's wrong. But it doesn't bother us anymore because we have a Supreme Court that says it's okay. Don't worry about it. sleep good tonight. Don't worry about it. Everything's okay. We forfeited our conscience to a lesser God. A God that does not want to punish us for the things they themselves are guilty of. And why do they have that? Look at the last words of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king of Israel, no God on the throne. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Are you with me? Yes. To get down to the what I want to say to you tonight, that ship sits out there as a memorial, the USS Huron. To anybody that's willing to look into the library and study, what happened that day on the banks of North Carolina, the Outer Banks? The end thereof is death. The end of what? The wages. The wages of what? The wages of sin. Do we think we can sin without paying for it? Oh, no. Did you know the gateway drug to heroin, the gateway drug to fentanyl, the gateway drug to ecstasy, the gateway drug to any of these? You know what the gateway drug is? It's the one that's now legal. It's called marijuana. Not everybody that does marijuana becomes a heroin addict, but almost every heroin addict started with marijuana. And we legalized it in one nation under God. And we're worshiping the God of the pharmaceutical. Pharmacopeia. Say that with me. Pharmacopeia. That's the Greek word for pharmacy. You know what it is also the Greek word for? Are you ready? Rebellion and witchcraft. Oh, wait a minute. You mean drugs and witchcraft are bedfellows? How do you think the seers convince people of all these things they see? They drug them. You give a guy a drug, he sees all kinds of stuff. Start with LSD. He'll be chasing butterflies the rest of his life. And they're all his wife or somebody else's wife. Oh, don't you get it. Sickly and pining away are the generation that's one generation away from the extinction of Christianity. President Ronald Reagan made the statement, democracy is one generation away from extinction. I think maybe Billy Graham said Christianity is one generation away from extinction. Well, I have news for you. I speak in public schools on university campuses. Sometimes they want to throw me off the campus. But in public schools, I'm welcomed by the, they almost throw down the roses for me to walk in on. 
Because I tell the truth about sexual behavior, about suicide. I tell the truth about depression. I tell the truth about drinking and driving and texting and driving and those things that get our kids killed. And I am booked in schools all over America, and I'm 75 years old. And I get no less than five standing ovations every time I speak from the student body. Not because I'm good, but because I'm honest. And I'm telling them the truth. And the teachers are begging for more, more, more. And they're not on the psych ward above me. They're on the psych ward beneath me. <laughs> Why am I telling you that? Because sickly and pining away are the last generation before extinction of Christianity. You can go to any school in America today and ask them, who is Jesus Christ? They'll confuse him with Buddha. Or they'll confuse him with Hare Krishna. Or Hare Krishna with Mohammed. Well, let me tell you something about Bud, Harry, and Mo. None of them died for me and rose again from the dead for me. None of them, none of them are seated at the right hand of God. None of them are interceding for me. None of them. None of them could care less if I went to heaven or hell. If you want to serve, if you want to serve Islam and the God of Islam, Allah, good luck because if you go to heaven, it's the whim of Allah. You have no assurance unless you're a suicide bomber. Or if you kill a Christian or a Jew, then you get to go to heaven. You want to serve a God like that? Oh, we all serve the same God. Oh, do we? Do you know the God they serve is in Mecca? And they go round and round and round. A rock they think is from the moon. They worship the God of the moon. They're moon worshipers. They worship the God of a creation, not the creator. They worship a creation. Are you with me? Don't be offended. Let's just talk about the truth. Just the truth. They worship a lunatic. If you caught that, enjoy it. They walk circles around a moon rock. Now you know why I'm on the hit list of ISIS. You should know the truth, and the truth shall get you the only hit list, but it'll set you free. Now hear the rest of the story. They worship a God that you're lucky if you get to go to heaven on the whim of Allah. And they tell us, we as Christians have the same God, the God of Abraham. Hmm. Let's compare gods. Their God says, give me your son to die for me and I'll make him a suicide bomber. My God says, I'll give you my son and he'll die for you. And make you fishers of men. I'd rather go fishing, wouldn't you? Than go suiciding. Don't tell me it's the same God. It's not. And I want you to hear the rest of the story, Paul Harvey. You, sir, you, my man, are designated by the word of God to be the priest of the house, not her. Oh, that is so chauvinistic. That is so sexist. Don't talk to me about it. Go to God. Tell him about it. He wrote it. Leave it with him. And I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. If you think because you're a man, woman, obey your husband. Uh, the Bible says for your wife, for you to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. How did he give himself for the church? He died for her. Are you willing to die for your wife, sir? So before you tell her how she ought to live, you might want to find out how you ought to live. And when you get down to it, I think it's a partnership. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenant built with the guarantee of loss and pain. I will love thee until death do us part. And I've been down that road of the death part, and it hurts. It hurts like nothing I've ever known in my life. But I found the life in Christ that is greater than all the loss in life and love. And that Jesus wakes me every morning to a new day, one second past midnight. His mercies are new every morning. I get up every morning. This is typically my day. I get up at 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning, depending on the time zone. And until 8 o'clock, 
I read the word of God. I worship the Lord and I listen to gospel music. I spend time in praise, worship, and prayer. And my praise and worship time is mixed between singing and reading the word of God. I never read less than two or three hours of the word every day of my life. That doesn't make me holy. But about almost now, almost three years ago, two and a half years ago, before Brenda even died, God gave me a passion for the Word of God. I started reading it. And I shared it this morning. Only because I want you to see that it can be done. I'm now in my fourth reading of the entire Bible through. I've read it through three times completely. And on January the 1st of this year, I started reading the New Testament for the fourth time. I finished the Old Testament for the fourth time. I start now the New Testament for the fourth time. But I couldn't get it finished by January 1st. Why am I telling you that? Because the more the word I put in, the more of the life comes out. You ever heard the term G-I-G-O? How many of you know what I'm talking about? G-I-G-O. Anybody? Come on. Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out. That's a computer term. Whatever you put into that computer is what's going to come out of that computer. It's not what we see that defiles us. It's what comes out of our mouth because what we saw was wrong. And we utter it. And when we speak it into existence and that filth of the flesh, we have condemned ourselves. Stay with me another minute because it's important. You understand? They come to me from Iraq and Afghanistan. I go to them in Iraq, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, UAE, uh, Syria, Bosnia, Kosovo, North Africa, South Korea, Japan, Okinawa, all these places, they send me. Not because I'm good looking. (laughs) It's getting better. That was a joke. (laughs) They don't send me because, uh, because I'm so military strong. I have to sit down to talk. I'm a broken physical vessel. They don't send me because of my academic achievements. I'm not like your pastor. He worked for his doctorate. I bought mine for millions. That's a big difference. I didn't have to think. I don't know how to think like you do. They don't, they don't call me for my, I was in the top 10% of the lower one third of my class. And I studied math and I found out five out of four people don't understand fractions. If you didn't get that, you were in my class. You know why they call me? Because I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. I beat the odds. I live through the darkness. Oh, a lot of guys got hurt physically and lived. Most of them ended up committing suicide. And I tried. But one day along came Jesus. When I was at the darkest hour. When I couldn't see the way out anymore. And they let me go into the room. That would be called the ICU. And they let a sweet little teenage girl that I called my wife, my junior high school sweetheart, walk into that room. I looked in her eyes. She said, welcome home, Davy." And when she called me Davy, I was home. I told the doc, doc, I'm getting better. He said, no, you're not. You're not getting out of here until you're well. And that was a year and two months later. That girl lived Jesus in front of me. Every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of 54 years. And her last words, Davy, I love you so. I have lived a charmed life. You know why? Not because of who I am, but I got this compass. And it's morally correct. Because Jesus is the North Star in my life. Jesus is whom I follow, and I want to be a wise man to follow that star. I hope tonight you've caught something. Because in Vietnam, when they ridicule me the most, they even nicknamed me. There were four in my team on one boat, four in the cover boat. So there were eight in our team altogether, but divided into four. Three in my team, not myself counted, three nicknamed me. One called me Dudley Do-Right because I wouldn't do the drugs. Dr. Do-Little because I wouldn't go to town and sleep with the little prostitutes. And the other one called me Preacher Man 
because I was always talking about Jesus. I thought that was a compliment. I called them pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three, and they thought that was a compliment. And they fought over who would be pervert number one. <clears throat> Thirteen years to the year after all of them thought I was dead, pervert number one was hit before me, two weeks before me. I was told, we were all told he died. So I think he's dead. He lived and none of us knew it. Thirteen years later, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan on a talk show on the radio. He hears my voice. He thought I was dead. We each thought the other was dead. On the 13th year, he hears my voice and he calls away, is this preacher man? I recognize the voice that used to curse me. The guy that spit on the back of my head from the top bunk, I was on the bottom. I recognized my own voice when I prayed, oh God, kill him. <laughs> Mountaineer did. I felt really bad the day he got hit because I thought he's dead. We each thought each other's dead. He said, is this preacher man? And I said, is this pervert number one? I said, call me on the business line. He did. We made an appointment to meet that day. Listen carefully. The compass was morally right in Vietnam. When I was under the greatest duress, the God of my dad, the God of my mom, was the God of Dave Reaver. Not through them vicariously, personally through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I was credentialed to become a licensed minister in good standing with the state of Texas and the brethren of the North Texas District of the Assemblies of God while I was between firefights on the bank of a river called the Vam Cote in South Vietnam. Came in a letter thrown out of a helicopter with ammunition to get us back home. They threw out the mailbag, and in it was a letter telling me I was approved to be a licensed credentialed minister. I'd already been that first step they called Christian workers' papers or something. I was credentialed to be a minister in a war zone. It has stuck with me all of my life. I've been in every war zone this nation has been in since Vietnam, ministering to our troops. Because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Amen. Is this starting to make sense to you? That night, pervert number one showed up at the church I was preaching in. First Assembly of God, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Pastor Wayne Benson. He can tell this story too. I look in the crowd. I can't see Mickey Block, pervert number one. I can't see him in the crowd because the crowd was standing room only. Balconies were filled. You couldn't find a place. To, if the fire marshal walked in, I'd have been locked up that night. I leaned over past. I said, he didn't come. I don't see him. About that time, an usher walked up with an envelope. When he handed it to us, it flopped over, opened it up, and in it was a 50 caliber live round. That's what took the leg off Mickey Block was a 50 caliber. I was leaning over. I said, Pastor, pervert number one is here tonight. I stood up and I said, folks, I can't go any farther without asking the question, is pervert number one here tonight? Fourteen people stood up confessing, no, I'm teasing you. That was a bad joke. I shouldn't have pulled that on you. I said, is Mickey Block here tonight? He stood up on his foot. That's all he had. And he started down with those crutches that are attached by the hand and the arm. And down the slope of that auditorium, he started losing control. He's going fat. He couldn't stop if he didn't want to come to Jesus. I caught him in front of the table that said, I don't know what this one says, but that one said, in remembrance of me. And I held pervert number one in my arms. Thirteen years after he cursed me, he violated everything precious about me with accusations. And I stood my ground. Thirteen years later, I held him in my arms as he confessed Jesus as Lord of his life and gave his heart to Christ. What I did not know, that same year, unbeknownst to the other three pervert, other two perverts, including Mickey, all three in the 13th year gave their heart to Christ. All three of them have died and are with the Lord today. You 
can't go wrong. You'll never end up on the rocks of the outer banks of life if you keep that moral compass straight. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy perverts, <laughs> I'm sorry, thy family, they'll all come to Jesus if you keep the moral compass right. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I love you folks. Let me for, thank you for letting me share my heart. I had other plans, and none of them came out in my message. When I started with that guitar, y'all are just wrecking my ministry. <laughs> I have no idea what I just said in this service, but I'm going to listen to it because if I find it's worthy, I might repeat it again. Thanks for letting me share. Can I close with prayer? I want to pray about your moral compass, Elimelech, king of the house. Where have you taken your family? That's the question of the night, isn't it? Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, there's a lot of kings in this service. There's a lot of priests of the house in this service, kings of their castle. The queen and all the princes are following that king. They're following that priest that man of God. But where's he taking them? Is he taking them down the primrose path of sexual sin? By the life and lifestyle he's living, the attitude, the words he speaks, the things he allows to be seen on that screen of a television? I wonder, Lord, is the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit strong enough to overcome self-justification in this room. If there's one man in this house that is convicted in his heart, I pray to you, almighty God in heaven, God of this earth, God of the daytime, God of the night, God of the living and God of the dead, God of everything above this earth, beneath this earth, and on this earth, God almighty, don't let that man out of this house without getting right with you. Because if he walks away, from this convicting of the Spirit, he'll never find his way back. I fear, and that is scary. He that knoweth to do right and doeth it not to him, it is sin. Forgive us of all of our sin, Lord Jesus. Forgive us. And to the men in this room, I ask, sir, what is the reading on your moral compass? Is it magnetic north or true north? Are you being pulled off by magnetism? A paper clip can pull off a magnet, something so little as just a white lie. Just that thought that you allow it to come back again and again, that simple little sin that so easily besets you. If you don't deal with it, it's going to deal with you. And if you don't conquer it, it's going to conquer you. And if you don't destroy it, it will destroy you. You came to church on Sunday night. I don't know what you expected, but I hope to God you came and heard something that is transforming in your life. So to every man in this room, I speak directly to you right now with every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't care to know your sin. I only care to know one thing. Is your compass on true north or magnetic north? Are you being pulled away? by the things of this world and you know you need that compass to be readjusted to true north in Jesus Christ. Sir, if I'm talking to you in the privacy of heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't do this when I give invitations in the world. They don't expect it. But in the church, it is so difficult. The peer pressure of Christian with Christian is horrific. And I'm trying to give you an easy answer to this question. If it's you, and God is speaking to many of you. Raise your hand and take it right back down. You don't have to hold it up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. More, more, more hand. Men, if you don't take this shot, I don't know when you'll get another one. Raise that hand. Mr. Reaver, my moral compass needs adjustment. Anyone else? Gentlemen, your last call right now. Take it up, put it up, take it down. Right now. Three, two, one. Good. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. You can all lift your heads. Everybody lift your heads. You're safe now. No one's exposed. No one's being tattled on. But here is how we conclude. 
God is bigger. Didn't that song say that? Isn't he bigger than your mountain? Did I read that song right? How many of you believe God's bigger than the mountain of these men's sin that no one else knows about? He's bigger, isn't he? He's bigger, sir. And that magnetic north is that thing that pulls you away from the truth. True north is what we're looking for tonight. True north. That's the two magnetic readings, the two readings of a compass. True north and magnetic north. We're going to stick with true north tonight. Here's what I want us to do. I'm going to invite everybody to pray this prayer. I try to make it easy. Sometimes I worry if I make it so easy, it's easy in and easy out. Let's make it easy in and never out. You stick with this walk with Christ the rest of your life. Amen. How many of you believe it can be done? Say yes. We believe it can be done. And without you knowing, I looked at the men who raised their hands. They agreed. Yes, it can be done. So with this, eyes wide open, let's confess Jesus with our mouth, everybody in the house. Lord Jesus, you're Lord of all. Deliver me from the attractions of this world. Keep my eyes on you. The true north, the truth of the truth, the word of the word. Lord Jesus, you. Come on, Lord Jesus, you. And you alone, the Son of the Most High God. My ears are tuned to your word, the living word of the written word. I confess you as Lord and Savior. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.